As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. This is DeRay. Welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Kaya, Diara, and Sam, as usual. We talk about the news that you probably don't know. And then a quick check-in with Netta about what's happening with the protests that continue. And then I sit down with Ben Wickler, chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin and an organizer, to talk about the fight over one of the election's most important swing states. My advice for this week, it's Tuesday. Go download the Untold Story Policing. It is a podcast that we help put into the world. It's hosted by none other than Emmy-nominated Jay Ellis uh, from Insecure. Uh, And you will learn so many things about police unions and the role they play in blocking accountability and blocking the transformative change that our lives demand. Let's do it. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I'm Kaya Henderson, at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. Uh, Diara is uh, with us and sending hers in, but not here on the recording today. But you'll hear. So let's talk about the situation with the United States Postal Service, which is the big news all weekend. In fact, I think I just saw that Congress is going to return early to try to deal with some of these issues. Is that right? Yeah, I think they actually, the Democrats scheduled hearings on the same day as the GOP convention, which is fascinating. <laughs> oh, they did? <laughs> quite a move. I think so. Yeah, I just saw that. If this is wrong, please cut it. <laughs> That's all we need this week is this for people right. to be mad at Sam. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it's been wild to see the images of them taking the mailboxes and putting them on a truck and targeting particular areas, black and brown communities in swing states, in Wisconsin, in Ohio, in Florida, in Michigan. And I mean, it's just so blatant. It is so blatant. It's like intentionally blatant because they really didn't even need to do it. Like if their goal was to disrupt everything, they could have been behind the scenes, you know, disrupting the mail carriers and not sending things. But they're like out in front putting all of the mailboxes on a truck in front of everybody recording it and like driving it away. So it is uh, blatant. It is intentional. It is really aggressive voter suppression, building on top of all of the other types of voter suppression that the Trump administration and the Republicans in general have been engaging in. We gotta fight this. Like there has to be an ability for people in a pandemic to vote. And it can't all be in-person voting because we know that the lines are gonna be too long and the polling places have already been closed in too many places. Uh, And so people need pathways to vote and voting by mail is one of those pathways. And so um, have to preserve that, have to fight against this administration and have to be able to preserve some semblance of democracy um, so that we can continue to build on that with a new administration uh, starting in January. It's also a little ironic that This president and his wife requested mail-in ballots from Florida because I guess they won't be in Florida on the actual election day. It's going to be November and a lot of places it's going to be cold. We saw, was it Wisconsin earlier this year where people stood on lines, where people actually contracted COVID while standing in line. It was rainy. It was terrible. And I think we're going to see similar kinds of things this election day 
Although I did see something running around social media, which effectively said you can get a mail-in ballot and take it to your polling place. I think it's going to be really important to spread the word about how we make this process as functional as possible, even if everybody can't mail in because of these shenanigans that these people are doing. I mean, I've heard a lot of people say things along the lines of, it won't matter as long as you send in your ballot ahead of time, it'll be fine. Uh, And it's, you know, I think people don't really fully grasp the implications of this. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of ballots that were delivered right up to the deadline of the election. And had they been delayed a day or two days, wouldn't have been counted. Um, I know personally uh, many folks who are friends and family members in Florida who in the 2018 election requested mail-in ballots and didn't receive them before the election. And I don't know what was going on with all of that, um, but because it was so slow to be delivered, they actually didn't get their ballots in time to be able to deliver them in person or by mail. So there are so many aspects of this that will just take us uh, not only requesting early, but if we don't get the ballot, we have to show up. Like nothing should be able to stop us from exercising our right to vote. You know, the thing that I think is really important to remember is that the Postal Service processes around 2.5 billion pieces of mail the week before Christmas. That is more than all the voters, right? So like the Postal Service has the capacity to do this. This is not a capacity issue. Remember that the Postal Service is not uh, run with any of your taxpayer dollars. It runs on its own money. That the only reason why there's any issue with the money over at the Postal Service is because the Republicans screwed up the money, that they made it fund itself into the future in ways that make no logical sense but besides to break it. It is good that people are telling this story and those images are coming out of them literally just pulling up mailboxes. And like Sam said, when you overlay it on the communities, you're like, wow, this is really blatant voter suppression. And, you know, I am nervous. I want everybody to vote early. Vote early. If you can vote early, vote now. The moment that voting early comes, I'm going to be voting in my uh, polling place Uh, The moment that I can so that like I'm not beholden to any of this stuff, I might even go vote in person at a random time of the day where I know it's not going to be a lot of people there just so it can be as safe as possible because he is going to pull out every single stop. And here's the thing is that I think it's going to get worse as we get closer to Election Day. Like you think about if he's willing to do this this far out. 10 days, five days to Election Day, you know, who knows what he'll be willing to do then. And now it's time for the news. My news is about a new sports league that will debut next week. Uh, It's an esports league, esports being electronic sports, and it's the HBCU esports league. For many people who don't know anything about the esports industry, it's a $1.5 billion industry of people playing a variety of sports online. And in fact, there are lots of schools that are currently engaged in esports leagues, about 2,000 colleges and universities with over 100,000 players. But the HBCUs have been late to the esports games. In fact, there's millions of dollars in awards and scholarships and billions in revenue. And the HBCUs are just now getting into it through a partnership with the Collegiate Star League which actually has the ability to be a game changer for a lot of uh, young people of color. One of the things that's really interesting about esports is African-American representation on major esports teams and in high-profile events is abysmal, according to this article in The Undefeated. 
And when I looked into why that is, why so few African-Americans are represented in esports, it was an interesting issue that is around kind of racial opportunity gaps, just like we see in schools. So white and Asian kids usually play games on their personal computers. African-American and Latino kids usually play console games, right? Games like, uh, oh, I don't even know. What do you call these things? Um, what do you call uh, these things? What do people have? Um, you know, I, clearly I don't have one. What do you play Madden on? Like a what, PlayStation? What's the thing? Like, um, PlayStation? PlayStation, yeah, exactly. Sorry. I'm an old lady. Uh, so, so black and Latino kids play on console games. White and Asian kids mostly play on PC games. And PC games are the entree into esports. Most of the esports games are on PCs. And so you see a tremendous racial gap in terms of representation. But that's all going to change through this partnership which could help the HBCUs catch up. This league that they are creating is not just about competition, which is why it was really interesting to me, but they are building a broader ecosystem beyond just the sports competitions and entering into authentic and long-lasting partnerships with a lot of the businesses that support esports. So in addition to having students compete, they're developing uh, esports curriculum and career certifications. Uh, they'll do research and development within the HBCU League. They're building a pipeline of future professionals in the sports and the business because they are steering students into internships and to jobs in esports companies. So this is really about creating people all up and down the, the esports ecosystem. At Hampton, which is one of the schools that is will be in the HBCU League, they have a certificate program that doesn't require a college degree or it doesn't even require college enrollment. And so I think as we look at the changing face of higher education broadly post-pandemic or during the pandemic, and you see innovations like the ability to get a certificate without being enrolled in a college or without having to get a degree that could open you up to new economic opportunities, I think we'll see interesting things that have the potential to happen for these young African-Americans who are joining this new HBCU eSports League. So this is really fascinating. I knew nothing about eSports leagues in general or some of the racial dynamics underlying who's able to participate in eSports, um, like the differences between video game consoles and PCs and how that opens up access for uh, white and Asian folks, but not black and Latino folks is like something I didn't even consider. I'm sort of fascinated in the ways in which this uh, eSports League might create pathways for folks to participate in uh, the economy more broadly, um, to begin earning revenue. I know like college sports in general, there are huge issues with players not getting compensated. Um, so just wondering to what extent many of those issues um, will sort of uh, track over into eSports or whether there's sort of a different structure that will be put in place uh, for eSports. Okay, so just like Sam, I had no clue about this. I didn't know that there was a National Association of Collegiate Esports that's the governing body for varsity esports. I didn't even know there were varsity esports. I didn't know that was a thing. I definitely didn't know this was a billion-dollar industry. And I hadn't even thought about, you know, I was reading about the physical toll that this takes on people, that what it means, especially when young people are sitting in front of a 
a computer or a console for 8 to 12 hours a day in some of the computer-related or console-related injuries like carpal tunnel syndrome, repetitive strain injury, and back pain. And there were even competitors whose lungs collapsed uh, because they were holding their breath so much during intense moments. I hadn't even thought about what it means when you professionalize uh, this body of play. Uh, so that was really interesting to me. And I'm happy that the HBCUs are, are being included because, you know, this might be one of the only sports that returns uh, for colleges in the fall, right? This might be one of the only things that is organized by universities, that is sort of a university affiliated because who knows when uh, like football and basketball and baseball and those, it's hard to have a bubble uh, like the NBA was able to do. And shout out to the NBA for having a bubble that is so successful It'll be interesting, too, to see what happens with the NBA, because I've seen so many people talk about, I know this is, has nothing to do with esports, but I am interested in, you know, home court advantage and all those things are just null and void all of a sudden when you're in the bubble because it's nobody's home, right? Um, and it's been interesting to see the dynamics play out and like how that might change the NBA uh, in the long term, given what we've seen so far. But uh, shout out to this esports league. I will pay attention. I'm sure you can like tune in. I need to figure out how you watch as a viewer, uh, but I'm sure there's a way to do that. So my news is about Burundi, uh, the East African nation that has just called on Belgium and Germany to pay reparations for the legacy of colonialism. So this is huge. They're calling on those two nations, Belgium and Germany, to pay $43 billion in reparations uh, for a whole host of atrocities and harms and colonial aggression that happened against uh, Burundi historically from 1899 all the way through the 1960s, 1962, uh, when Burundi uh, became independent. Uh, and this is fascinating because you know we often talk about the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow in the United States, um, but I think it's important to note that you know during that time in Africa, you had the essentially the entire continent um, that was under colonial rule, um, and it, it wasn't really until the 1960s, around the same time that in the U.S. we had the civil rights movement, you had the repeal of Jim Crow by and large, although in some places they continue to to have laws like that needed to get repealed, like Amendment 4, that are a legacy of that. Um, but at the same time in Africa in the 1960s, um, you had independence movements uh, that were very much about overthrowing this colonial structure. And so this is a call uh, by Burundi for reparations for that history. It's also a call to repatriate a lot of the artifacts and cultural uh, relics that were stolen from Burundi by Germany uh, and Belgium. Um, and this is really, really interesting because it's the second African nation recently um, that has called for this. Uh, Congo has also um, called for reparations from Belgium uh, for the legacy of colonialism there. But you know, I wanted to bring this to the conversation. You know, I'm always interested in the sort of international intersections of how white supremacy has shown up in so many different countries across the globe, how it's impacted black people all across the world, um, and uh, the ways in which different countries, uh, different populations are in this moment um, seeking reparations, seeking redress for that harm that's been caused. Two things were interesting to me about this. Um, the first was that Burundi has been in the midst of a long time revolution and that the genesis of the revolution is 
this decree by Belgian King Albert I to classify the population according to three different ethnic groups. And those three ethnic groups, really two main ones, the 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 Hutus and the Tutsis have been fighting. That's like this whole thing boils down to how do white people divided folks up, right? And we see that I was in Nigeria earlier this year and some of the problems between North and South Nigeria are just because where the white people drew a line, right? And randomly separated people. And so this idea of naming people and drawing lines and separating people that you don't know anything about that leads to generational conflicts that persist over decades and and in some cases hundreds of years was fascinating to me to think about. The other thing that this article made me think about was just the idea like how do you calculate what is owed to an entire country that has been colonized. I mean, we can't, we're trying to figure out how you calculate what is owed to generations of the descendants of formerly enslaved people in the United States, but this is a whole entire country, right? As I was reading about this idea of stolen artifacts, I was thinking about the scene in Black Panther, right? When they go to the museum and reclaim, I mean, the people don't even know that it's Wakandan and how, like what museum are these people's artifacts and how do you reclaim stolen objects? How do you reclaim your history? How do you come to $43 billion? I think it's interesting, and I would love to know a little bit more about that. But I think this is just the beginning. Lots of folks are asking for their due. Uh, So there's a lot that I had to learn about uh, the range of colonialism. I feel like in high school, it was just the UK. And then as I got older, I'm like, whew, it was a, a lot more countries than that. But I didn't know that in 2019, Belgium apologized for the kidnapping, segregation, and deportation, and the forced adoption of thousands of children born to mixed-race couples during their rule of Burundi, Congo, and Rwanda, uh, and that in 2019, that was the first time that Belgium had ever recognized any responsibility uh, for the harm that they caused in those Central African nations, which they colonized for a combined eight decades. Now, you know, what was interesting about this to me is, A, I didn't know anything about this apology, but more importantly, I didn't know anything about the fact that they were uh, stealing mixed race kids from families to the tune of about 20,000 children were taken from their parents, uh, mostly single African mothers, and placed in orphanages and schools predominantly run by the Catholic Church because they were afraid uh, that mixed race kids were going to overthrow the government. There's a quote uh, that I read from uh, Mr. Budagwa, uh, who's a Belgian engineer and an amateur historian who was born in colonial Congo and whose family experienced a separation of mixed race children. And he was a co-author of the parliamentary resolution that was unanimously adopted in 2018, urging the government to apologize. And what he said was, and I quote, children born out of parents of mixed color during colonial times were always considered as a threat to the colonial enterprise, to profits and to the prestige and the domination of the white race. And it was just fascinating. It made me think of how many other things did I not know about. I also didn't know that in 2017, the Catholic Church apologized for its participation in the kidnapping and segregation 
of mixed race kids uh, and in the banning of mixed race marriages. So in that time, in a letter, the Belgian bishop stated, quote, many never knew their mother or their father and many mothers never saw their children again. For a long time, they couldn't fully exercise their civic rights and a large number later found itself on the margins of Belgian society in insecurity and hardship. We present our apologies to those people for the part taken by the Catholic Church in these deeds. And you're like, that is just not enough. But what's galling about that is that this is like a double offense. On the one hand, who were the, the mothers were African mothers. And so presumably the fathers were German or, or, or Belgian, right? And my guess is they, these were not all consensual relationships. And so you have a power dynamic with these white fathers and then these African mothers. And then, oh, the offspring, let's just take them. So there is kind of the, I, I perpetrated this crime against these women. Oh, and I'm going to take their offspring because they might overthrow us. The whole, the psychology of all of this is also pretty, I don't know, it, it makes me aggravated. So in, in addition to that, um, first of all, the $43 billion is uh, a lot of money, um, considering that the economy of Burundi is about $3 billion. Um, so it is... Um, you know, you got to ask for what you're owed, first of all. So, like, I'm hoping that Burundi can <laughs> know teach your a lot of folks all across the world to, to ask for what you deserve. And secondly, I think for me, you know, my, my dad grew up in Tanzania under colonial rule in Tanzania. And I've, like, asked him about, like, what this was like. And, and he, you know, there weren't a whole lot of white people there. So, like, people... You know, in the U.S., it was it was still in most places like white majority, except for like, maybe like South Carolina, Louisiana, uh, and a few states. Um, in like Tanzania, Burundi, like all across the continent, it was like a handful of white people and an entire continent full of black people, and the white people hoarded all of the resources, right? And so it was just like wild uh, level of inequality. And then what they did, which is not unique to the African continent, in fact, they were doing this all across the world and in the United States, was divide people um, based on ethnicity, based on color, based on race, and created, so each of these countries has its own sort of racial or ethnic hierarchy that is largely a remnant or a legacy of white supremacy. And it looks different by country. So, you know, in South Africa, they have sort of a tri-racial hierarchy where you have whites at the top and then you have um, sort of mixed race people and Indian people who are sort of in the middle and then like black Africans are at, at sort of the bottom of their hierarchy. Um, and it's different depending on where you are, right? And so um, I think a lot of times we talk about race, it is through the lens of how it's been constructed in America. But like white people have been doing this in so many places across the world in slightly different ways, uh, but ultimately the outcome has led to um, these vast inequities that we see on the African continent, within countries, within the United States. And it's good to see people stand up and demand uh, reparations for that harm. It is also wild to think about how, you know, I feel like the overall space uses the word violent a lot and it isn't meaning as much to people anymore. But just how intense it is to take any child from their family, but 20,000 children and just be like, you know what, we're sorry. You're like, that is like, that is offensive to just, and you think about like, the pain to mothers to not only, not only am I like separated from my child, this isn't temporary. This is a permanent forced separation. And it's not, the children were put in orphanages, right? Like you literally took children from their families 
and put them in orphanages so that they would never amass political power because you were afraid of that. Like, how disgusting is that? So, you know, I'm always shocked. Thank you for bringing this to the pod, Sam, because I literally had never heard of this. My news is about uh, mental health. So we've all been inside for a long time at this point. And according to the latest study by the CDC, almost 11% of Americans have reported seriously contemplating suicide uh, in the pandemic time. And that is about double the percentage of people who were surveyed at the same time last year. Uh, suicidal ideation was highest amongst 18 to 24 year olds, it was about 25%, and amongst unpaid caregivers for adults, it was about 30%. And in total, 40% of Americans reported some mental health issue or substance abuse related to the pandemic. And I just wanted to bring this here because, you know, we've all been inside for a long time. And if anything, this has been a reminder of how important community is, how important it is to like be around people. You know, Zoom is uh, not a great substitute, but it is better than not seeing anybody. Uh, and also this moment for me has exacerbated how difficult it is to get mental health support, like how hard it is to find a therapist, how hard it is to uh, get your health insurance to potentially cover somebody who is not necessarily in network at the time. What happens if you want a therapist and don't know how to use technology in a moment like this? And then how do you, you know, going back into larger society when the pandemic ends won't be just a cakewalk, right? We've talked about schools. There are all these kids who have been, they haven't been around a group of anybody for so long that that transition period back will be something that we will need to plan for. Like the transition back to the workplace will be something we need to plan for. All of this will be something that we actually need to plan for. And I just want to bring this here because 11% is high. That is a lot of people uh, dealing with suicidal ideation. And the question for me becomes, uh, how do we make sure that people get what they need? Uh, can this be another rallying cry for Medicare for All or universal health care, whatever you want to call it, whatever your version of it is that gives everybody access to high quality care? So one of the things that was fascinating about the data was seeing the breakdowns by race. You know, when you disaggregate the data, uh, it is 8% of white people seriously considered suicide in the past 30 days, and 15% of black people did, and 10% of Latinos did. So it is particularly um, intense for black folks. Um, similarly, around adverse mental or behavioral health symptoms, uh, black people were more likely than white people to report experiencing those symptoms, anxiety or depression, uh, the whole range of uh, symptoms here, black people are more likely to have reported experiencing that than white people. Uh, and it is not a coincidence given the ways in which we've seen this pandemic and all of uh, the other crises that have happened disproportionately impact black communities. And now we're seeing that materialize in the outcomes, in outcomes in terms of uh, mental health, in terms of uh, depression and suicidal ideation. Um, and it's a reminder that the response to this also needs to grapple with which populations are most impacted um, and cannot be a response that excludes uh, the very populations that have experienced and borne the brunt of this crisis. There's also an overlay here with COVID-19 in that in early reports coming out of China and Europe, people who recovered from COVID-19 uh, saw increased cases of depression and anxiety. And so what they're starting to believe are that there are post-COVID neuropsychological problems 
that as this virus keeps on changing in new ways. And so they're seeing mood disorders and deeper cognitive impairment post-COVID and trying to figure out. So I, I also wonder if some subset of some of these mental health issues are coming from the preponderance of COVID cases. And as we know, disproportionately, people of color are suffering from COVID. Uh, I was excited to see Mrs. Obama last week uh, talk about suffering from a low-grade depression as a result of this pandemic, as a result of some of the race relations stuff going on and some of the political strife. Because I think, as we well know, in the Black community, um, talking about mental health still carries a significant stigma. It's getting better. But when you have somebody like Auntie Shell who says, I'm feeling depressed, then it opens the door for a lot of other people to be able to acknowledge what they're feeling and to be able to think about what it means to get help. And so I appreciate that she was honest and put it out there and invited people uh, to deal with some of their mental health issues so my news this week, I decided to focus on the Democratic National Convention. I wish that we could be there in person, um, but that's not the case, unfortunately, given COVID. Um, but, you know, the show must go on and we needed to go on to continue to build momentum as we go into November. Um, so I wanted to focus on it because I just wanted you all to know, like, the where, the what, the how, how to, how to watch, essentially. So the convention will air from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Time every day, Monday through Thursday. The New York Times is also streaming the full convention every day. The official live stream is at demconvention.com. It's also available on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch, whatever that is. Um, ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox News will also carry the convention from 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. each night. Um, you can also stream it on Apple, Roku, Amazon Fire. Um, you can also search Amazon Prime Video for DNC, and you can watch it that way. Also, if you have an Alexa device, you can say, Alexis, play the Democratic National Convention. So clearly it is available, whether or not the word has gone out to the masses in terms of the when and the where is still unknown. We'll see when we get the ratings back and get an analysis on viewership. Um, but hoping that all of you watch and you encourage others to watch. It's important to watch so that we really can get a full understanding of where the party is on issues. I think there's been a lot of conversation around, you know, obviously Biden being anti-Trump or, you know, the Democratic side just being anti-Trump, but really getting a sense of what those policy platforms are, you know, where we got with the Biden-Sanders committees that were meeting on particular issues, whether it was the economy, education, or climate change. In terms of the speakers, there's been a little bit of controversy around who is speaking and how much time. You all probably saw that AOC is only allotted 60 seconds, while we have Governor Kasich, who um, obviously is a former Republican governor out of Ohio, is given time, also kind of middle of the road. Democrats, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, obviously she was a Democratic nominee, but, you know, given time as well. So not so much time given to AOC or time given at all to Democratic candidates like Julian Castro. So one, it's going to be interesting, this whole conversation around who's getting time and who is not given time, I think is very emblematic of 
you know, kind of the traditional theories and traditional ideologies of the Democratic Party, obviously panding more to the middle of the road people, trying to pick up Trump supporters, which I think is a really interesting strategy, um, as opposed to giving emphasis and time and investment into your base, so your black and Latino voters. So we'll see how it goes. I think we all should watch. So we all should see what this platform is, how it has come to be, and how we can hold all these folks accountable, regardless of what happens in November. So I'm hoping that all of you all tune in. There's also performances, John Legend, Billie Eilish, Common, Jennifer Hudson. So, you know, you can find um, their time slots as well. But again, you can tune in to the full convention Monday through Thursday at dimconvention.com. Hope you all tune in. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. And now let's check in with Netta to see what's going on in the protest and what's on her mind. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's me, Netta. And thanks so much for tuning back in. The last seven days have been full of anticipation and excitement for me. It's a good time to announce I'm back with Campaign Zero, an organization I helped co-found with DeRay and Sam back in 2015. I'm a little older, a lot wiser, and still just as committed as before to living in a world without police violence. I'm excited to be returning in time for Next to Six, a campaign that had its genesis back in 2015 when we started with around just like 80 contracts. It was just our brain baby. And I call ideas that just stay safely tucked away in my mind, away from compliments or critiques. I call them brain babies. So shout out to all the friends and organizers from across the country who sat on calls with us last week to offer their valuable feedback to make sure that we got this and continue to get this right. The continuation of this work feels like a full circle moment in my life. After originally stepping away from Campaign Zero in 2017 to spend time with my family, friends, myself, and return back to school, it was much needed time away. And in those three years, I learned so much about myself, taking so much time with myself. Those meditation retreats that I mentioned a few weeks back, that was lovely. And I didn't start deep diving into my own personality my own decision-making skills, my own personality type. Like, I just went super deep with it. (laughs) Um, Just trying to learn what it was that inspired me to even make the series of decisions that I had made to lead me to where I was in life. And yeah, that was when I was 27 going on 28. I'm now 31. So everything just feels, you know, this feels good. So I'm so happy to be back and back with the crew Um, And we've got so much left to do if we want to live in the world we say we want to live in. The work feels grounded. It feels focused this time. It's accessible. And I'm really proud of it. I'm excited and very anxious to see how this will impact the world. We've examined more than 700 police union contracts from all over the country. Our hope is to aid organizers on the ground in every neighborhood they're in to use this tool as a way to bring about justice in their communities the way that we hope to do back home in St. Louis. Because at the end of the day, that's what this is about. It's true that Congress can do some things, but real change happens community by community. And what works in Chicago may not work for Las Vegas or St. Louis. What works in big cities may not work in rural areas. It's all about returning the power back to the people. Whatever that happens to look like for you and your city. It was another tense weekend in Chicago as police and protesters clashed at Millennium Park. According to the Chicago Tribune, the protest, organized by Good Kids Mad City, Black Rising, Chicago Freedom School, March for Our Lives Chicago, and Increase the Peace, had four key demands. Take the Chicago Police Department out of Chicago Public Schools, cancel the ICE Citizens Academy, reallocate funds towards e-learning, and community centers, and for local universities to cut ties with ICE. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Superintendent David Brown are blaming the weekend clashes on outside agitators who hijacked a peaceful protest. While Lightfoot is tepidly towing the company line, standing with the police without a full-fledged condemnation of the protest, 
Brown is in full Blue Lives Matter mode, offering up a near moment-by-moment account of why his officers decided to get violent with protesters. While the organizations who organized this weekend's protest do not have the expensive PR apparatus that Chicago police do, I can only assume that Brown thinks that the public is some mix of gullible or outright stupid. We can't get to the present without briefly covering the past. CPD is in the running for the most violent and corrupt in the country, hands down. It's the same police department that ran a literal black site, an off-the-books interrogation warehouse. Of those detained, the overwhelmingly majority were black and other people of color. In 2016, the city also paid out $5.5 million in reparations to 57 people who were tortured by the police from the 1970s through the 90s. I've also had my own experiences. When I lived in Chicago, in Rogers Park, that area had little to no police activity, but a Chicago police car would be posted on my block regularly. When David Brown tries to plant his officers as the victims of protesters, it flies in the face of all we know about CPD. It also flies in the face of video evidence. Protesters stated that they were kettled, pepper sprayed, and beaten during the encounter. Video evidence confirmed this. Meanwhile, video released by CPD is at best sketchy. When confronted with allegations of kettling, the ever-detailed Brown suddenly didn't have much to say, telling reporters, quote, I haven't heard these allegations that there was kettling going on. There's video captured. People can judge for themselves, quote. We sure are judging Superintendent Brown. We sure are. It is also not lost on me that protesters organizing against police violence are met with what? More police violence. The protest demands were not and are not unreasonable. Neighborhoods and schools in the city have been under-resourced for decades. The intentional divestment from black and brown communities is one part of a lethal concoction that fuels the city's issues with violence. Instead of looking at solutions to violence through the lens of public health, The city's response year after year to under-resourced schools is over-policing. Cops in school. Cops in neighborhoods. Cops working with ICE. These young people in Chicago have realized what more people should. Expanding the police state is not the answer for everything. And they are willing to fight for those resources that they actually deserve. And by the way... If a police department with a reputation for torture and kidnapping surrounded me in the street, I'd fight back too, because my life may literally be on the line. I couldn't end this week without touching on the biggest news of last week, the selection of Kamala Harris as Joe Biden's vice presidential running mate. By the time you hear this, the pick, the stakes, and what it means for us in November will have been analyzed at length. However, I will leave you all with this. 12 years after Barack Obama entered the history books as the first black president, we're once again knocking on history's door with the opportunity to elect the first woman who is of black and South Asian descent to the office of vice president. And as much as I love seeing people who look like me on the biggest stages, I hope we don't make the same mistakes we made in 2008 and 2012 under Obama. Social justice, much like politics, is a 24-7 game with very real consequences that has no off-season. People heavily invested in maintaining the status quo, whether that be the police state, the military-industrial complex, or the transferring of public dollars into the hands of the obscenely wealthy never rest, and neither can we. 
No matter who is in the Oval Office on January 20th at noon, we should all be ready to keep fighting to make sure that the world we say we want to live in is a reality. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you all next week. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Based on the data on 2016's election, Wisconsin is identified as maybe the most important swing state for Trump's victory. Ben Wickler, chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, he's been working on the ground to make sure that that doesn't happen. Here is our conversation. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. It is great to be with you. I'm a big fan, uh, long-time listener, first-time guest. Long-time listener, first-time guest. So I'm excited to talk to you today because of your role in the Democratic Party in Wisconsin, because of your roles and move on, stuff like that. Can you talk about how you got to sort of organizing? What was like your path to this in politics? So my first political memory is being on my mom's shoulders. It must must have been my dad's shoulder. I I remember going with my mom and being on someone's shoulders when I was seven to a Jesse Jackson rally on the steps of the Capitol in Wisconsin um, in 1988 when he was running for president. And he ran an amazing campaign in Wisconsin. That's kind of the first time I tuned in. When I was 11, my godmother ran for Congress, a woman named Ada Deer, who is a hero and and mentor of mine. Um, She had led the Menominee Nation at a time when the federal government had terminated recognition of her tribe. And she had led this amazing fight and gotten a law passed through Congress and signed by the president to re-recognize the Menominee Nation. And that was the first you know, tribal restoration in the United States. And so um, she had become very close to my mom because they're both social workers. And when I was 11, she ran for Congress. And I volunteered on her campaigns, just like stuffing envelopes and putting up yard signs. Uh, I have this very vivid memory of when she won the primary. Uh, she came out to the microphone. I was like a few feet away looking up at her. And she said, I've been waiting a long time to say this. Me nominee. Which is like the best pun that you can make on the name of the Menominee Nation. That kind of like, I think got me hooked. When I was in middle school and high school, friends and I had underground student newspapers. 
Uh, I volunteered on other campaigns. I worked with a bunch of other students to try to get the Coca-Cola Corporation had signed a marketing contract with our school districts, and we didn't like corporate influence in public education. So some friends and I organized a big campaign to like protest the school board and eventually uh, get them to cancel the contract. They were the first school district in the country to cancel a, a contract with a soft drink company. And I think that experience of activism hooked me on the other side of the coin, which is, you know, you try to get progressives elected and get electeds progressive. Um, so that led to then the, the next year in high school working to get a student seat established on our school board in Madison, and then finally realized that the Coke contract and everything else was due to state policy on education funding. So I, I helped start a statewide network in high school called Students United in Defense of Schools, which was a name chosen because of the acronym SUDS, and our slogan was, it's time to clean up school funding. We protested, we like brought all these students to the Capitol. We had people testify during the state budget committee hearings. The Joint Finance Committee, I think, allocated $20 million for special education that year that they hadn't been budgeting before. So the experience of being part of fights where we got to see the impact of the work made me hooked for life. And I've sort of zigzagged between electoral politics and advocacy and media you know, ever since. Tell us what's happening in Wisconsin. Like, what, what is the state of the party in Wisconsin? Why is Wisconsin an important place to organize? Uh, why is it the place that you chose? I mean, I know you're from there, but why is it the place that you've chosen to stay and organize? So from a national perspective, Wisconsin is so critical because if the election is close, just about every model puts us maybe the top three, maybe the top two, often the, the single most important state for tipping the electoral college one way or the other. When electoral you know, data scientists look back at 2016, they found that Wisconsin was the tipping point state in that cycle. It is widely predicted to play the same role in 2020. One way to kind of think about that is that if you take all the states where Trump is less popular than he is in Wisconsin, um, that you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are poised to win, they add up to just shy of 270 electoral college votes. So you got to add Wisconsin to win the White House. And when you take all the states where Trump is more popular than he is in Wisconsin, it's also just shy of 270 electoral college votes. So he has to add Wisconsin too. The The Trump campaign had a, a briefing last fall where they laid out their, their plan and they said, if we win Wisconsin, we win the election. If we lose Wisconsin, we lose the election. And it winds up being as simple as that. We just have to win this state. And there's a reason why Wisconsin is in this position. It's because the, the GOP has been rigging the rules for really the last decade very intensively to make it easier for Republicans to win and harder for Democrats by especially restricting access to the ballot. Uh, Wisconsin's had three presidential elections out of the last five where the margin of victory was under one percentage point. We were the closest state in the country in 2004, even closer in 2000. And in 2016, you know, the public polling average, we had Clinton up six and a half points, and then Trump won by 22,748 votes, 0.7% margin. That is the shape of fights often in our state, even though when you pull the public, there's wide support for progressive policies. Right now, Biden is solidly ahead of Trump, but we can't take anything for granted because we have this history of things getting just down to a hair's breadth in the, in the final stretch. So that was a big piece for me. The other thing is the future of the state is also at stake. Republicans gerrymandered Wisconsin so intensively that they're now three seats away from super majorities in both the state assembly and the state Senate. Wow. Yeah. Um, in 2018, in the blue wave, Democratic assembly candidates got 54% of the vote for state assembly seats. They only got 37% of the seats. That means that, you know, Republicans now have 63. If they get to 66 in the assembly and they 
they bump up to 22 in the Senate from 19, um, they'll be able to re-gerrymander the state for another decade, even though we have a Democratic governor. And we cannot let that happen. Wisconsin has this very complex political history where, on the one hand, it's been an amazing kind of bastion of progressivism and of, of forward movement. We were the only state in the country to declare the Fugitive Slave Act unconstitutional after a huge riot freed a man who'd been enslaved, had escaped to Wisconsin, was tracked down by federal marshals, and they had him imprisoned in Milwaukee. And this riot broke out, 5,000 people, which is like the whole population of Milwaukee at the time, and helped to free him. He escaped to Canada. And then litigation after that led to our a unanimous Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling to declare the Fugitive Slave Act unconstitutional. The Republican Party started as a radical anti-slavery party here. The Wisconsin Democratic Party insisted on seating the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party at the DNC in the 60s. And yet Wisconsin now has the biggest, by many measures, racial disparities in the country and incarcerates black men at a higher rate than any other state in the country, according to the 2010 census. That is maybe the biggest fault line, but you can trace it across all these other areas of policy as well. Like we created public sector unions in Wisconsin and had one of the strongest labor movements in the country. And then you look at what the GOP did. Scott Walker came in and first crushed public sector unions, then turned Wisconsin into a right to work state and has just hammered organized labor, which, by the way, was the engine of, of black middle class prosperity in Milwaukee. Milwaukee had the lowest poverty rate among major cities in the black community in the country in 1970, and now has some of the, the highest poverty rates and lowest home ownership rates. All these pieces, there's this struggle that's gone on for a century and a half in our state, and it's all on the line this fall, at the same time as the entire national struggle could hinge on what happens in our state. So what's the plan? What do we do? What's the plan? (laughs) The, The plan is to organize. The thing about this state is Republicans have turned voting into an obstacle course. They put one of the most restrictive voter ID laws in the country in place when Scott Walker was governor. They made it so that to request an absentee ballot requires having a photo ID, having a voter ID, uploading the voter ID to a web form or scanning it and printing out or photocopying it and mailing it to your county clerk. Then you get your absentee ballot. Then you have to get a witness signature on the envelope of the ballot, which is tough in the middle of social distancing. And then you send it in. And now Trump is sabotaging the Postal Service. And we know that the Trump campaign is relying on a massive voter suppression operation to try to depress the vote in person on Election Day. You know, our election laws are really specifically rigged against people of color and young people across the state because Republicans have over and over, they've cleaned up with older voters. So this year, we need to organize and support people getting around all these obstacles Republicans have put up and any new ones they throw in our path. And what we saw in the spring Supreme Court election is that the GOP is willing to put people in harm's way and and risk infection with coronavirus if they think it'll help them electorally. But what we also saw in Wisconsin spring Supreme Court election is that the hunger to vote and the refusal to you know, have our votes taken away is a huge motivating factor for Democrats across geography, across race, across gender, all over our state. So in our spring Supreme Court election, the day after Republicans got a state and a federal Supreme Court ruling to try to hammer on voting rights in our state, people returned their absentee ballots in record numbers. People lined up for hours to vote and dozens of people, I mean, tragically, dozens of people, it looks like contracted coronavirus on that day. And nonetheless, we won a 10-point landslide against the Trump-backed candidate for state Supreme Court. As we look to this fall, it is about spending every possible hour from now through polls closing on November 3rd to call people, to text people, to do everything we can to help people get 
absentee ballots early to put them in the mail long in advance. And then as we get closer to hand deliver them to polling places to make sure people know about curbside voting, drive through voting, every option that we have to keep people safe. Everyone has to figure out what is the safest way for them to vote. But every ballot that's cast early reduces the chance of lines and things being jammed on election day. And the other path for us is that we are recruiting people to make sure there are enough poll workers to keep every one of these precincts open. In the spring, we had five polling places in Milwaukee. We just had our partisan primary for the fall election in Wisconsin, and there were 168 polling places open. So there is huge progress underway, but the key to all of it is people power. You know, I remember that election of the state Supreme Court judge in Wisconsin because it was one of the few judge elections that sort of made national news. Like that was uh, an election that everybody watched. Can you talk about why that election matters in the grand scheme? The, the spring election had multiple layers of significance. The first one was it's the only statewide general election pitting a progressive Democratic supported candidate against a Republican supported candidate in the country since the pandemic hit. Lots of places have had primaries. We're the only place that had the two sides actually go up against each other. So at one level, it was really significant as a dress rehearsal for the fall. And I know that both the Republicans and we on the Democratic side saw it that way. There was a just an extraordinary mobilization by community organizations and grassroots groups, by labor unions, by everybody, and certainly by the Democratic Party to do everything we could to fight in part for that reason. The second thing is that the Wisconsin Supreme Court has become a kind of third branch of the legislature because the Republicans on that court are so utterly partisan. You could see it in their decision right before that election to override the governor's emergency powers and say that the election had to take place in person. You could see it a few weeks later when the Republicans in the state legislature sued to the state Supreme Court and got it to strike down the governor's ability to issue emergency health orders through the Department of Health Services. And that ended the stay home order in Wisconsin and coronavirus has been going up ever since. There are a lot of aspects of governance that are affected by this. And one specific one that we were very conscious of before that race is that there was a court case pending to purge huge numbers of Wisconsin voters, although the numbers shrank as people re-registered for the spring election. It used to be 234,000 Wisconsinites were on the verge of being purged using an inaccurate list, notoriously inaccurate database of people who supposedly had moved. Republicans on the Supreme Court seemed like they were itching to purge those voters. And the guy who was on the ballot, Dan Kelly, had recused himself before the Supreme Court race, because I think he realized it would have politically backfired to look like he was trying to purge Democrats from the election that he was going to be in. Uh, but he said he was going to unrecuse himself afterwards. So it really looked like if he won that election, they were going to make that purge happen and kick a lot of voters off the rolls, maybe shortly before election day, when it would have been really hard to re-register folks. As it happened, we won. And the Supreme Court afterwards decided not to consider the case until I think they have the first hearing about it in September. Nobody expects them to rule until after the election. That is a a big change that will affect what happens in the fall. There are probably a bunch of other voting rights cases that could come before the Supreme Court. So it both affects the life of every Wisconsinite. These are 10-year terms on our state Supreme Court, but it also affects voting rights and what we learn about organizing for the presidential election. It's always interesting to talk to organizers because it feels like the internet has been both a gift and not a curse. That feels too strong, but... Uh, it's not all positive when I think about organizing. And one of the things that I get worried about is that people are nervous about putting a stake in the ground that like, 
it has become sort of sport to criticize and to sort of tear apart. And like the critique has to be a part of uh, what we do because it's the only way we know sort of the good from the bad. Uh, but I get worried that it's not always coupled with people wanting to build the next thing or like putting a stake in the ground. Uh, how do you think about what the internet has done in terms of sort of the good and not so good in terms of organizing? I think a lot about how the internet has made it easier for people who have relationships or are in community with each other already to be able to connect even when it might not be safe to do it in person. This is the way it's shown up to the biggest degree in Wisconsin this year. Our strategy at the Democratic Party of Wisconsin has been to build neighborhood teams. So we use the Obama model where our organizers on our staff recruit and train and support local leaders who launch neighborhood volunteer teams to mobilize voters in their own communities. We've been doing that since the spring of 2017, and we now have hundreds of teams all over the state. When COVID hit, those teams had been gearing up to knock on you know, as many doors as possible, doors that they'd been knocking on in some cases for years. We had to switch to a virtual system. But because we actually had this infrastructure in place, we could run trainings for all the neighborhood team leaders and you know, set up an enterprise Zoom account so everyone could get online, hook people up with virtual phone banks. And suddenly, this whole local infrastructure was organizing local virtual phone banks where people would meet on a Zoom call and dial their neighbors and know that they were all doing it together. And if it hadn't been for our ability to work online, that would have been incredibly isolating. And it also would have been incredibly hard to recruit you know, new volunteers to have teams like this if they hadn't been building those offline relationships. At this point, there's relational organizing where you kind of adopt voters in your own social network and reach out to them. We track all that work through apps and through the internet. There's virtual phone banks, there's peer-to-peer text messaging. All the coordination is done in this way that's online, but it's not public in the same way as the Twitter wars and, and that kind of stuff are. I think there's a whole layer of online organizing that happens below the surface of the kind of public debates and battles that is facilitated to an extraordinary and entirely positive degree by the internet. I, I do think things can get pretty nasty on Facebook, on Twitter, I do a lot of tweeting. There are a lot, if you go to local county party organizations around the state, in any part of the state, a lot of people are using Facebook. And nuance can disappear and people can be at each other's throats very quickly in that kind of setting. But so much organizing that happens is actually the individual direct messages and Facebook messages and the text messages people send. And that has been, that's been a tremendous boon. And what do you think about the upcoming presidential election? Like what's your strategy? You know, there are a lot of people who are like, uh, not like it was in 2016. You remember 2016 where people were like, president doesn't matter. You don't have to vote for president. Only vote local. And like that was, you know, a nightmare of a message. Uh, <laughs> how do you talk to people about voting uh, today? Especially for the president when people are like, you know, Biden and Harris aren't as to the left as we need them to be and da 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 da, da. If, You know, if you are someone who is fighting on issues and has a strong left analysis of this fight, to me, I think one of the really compelling arguments is that the president, who is in the White House, who is leading the, the different departments in the cabinet, which are such incredibly powerful positions, those create the terrain on which you fight. And you can either have someone who is responsive to white nationalist organizations um, and the extreme right fringe, or you can have someone who actually listens to what the public has to say and what you know, broad-based social movements are, are saying. You know, it doesn't guarantee an outcome, but it changes the type of battle that you can wage, the type of arguments that you can make, that you can actually make an argument based on a set of, of shared values about wanting to build a country where everyone can thrive and have a government that works to listen to those. 
you know, you're, you're not like electing a dictator who can just fix everything. You're electing a person and a team and a whole network of thousands of appointees who are part of the fabric, you know, of a democracy and a civil society that might be more responsive to public concerns than the one we've got right now. And in that light, you know, it helps explain why we can't expect everything to change on a dime and the work is not done when election day happens, but also why it is so absolutely critical to fight. In the art of war, the terrain that you choose for your battle is 99% of the fight. And I think the same thing is often true in politics. There we go. What about policing, right? So like, obviously, you, you know, I first knew who you were because of the protests in 2014 when we were in the street in St. Louis, uh, and then the protests just emerged again or reemerged. What is your take on the work around criminal justice and like the fight ahead? Like, what do you have any advice for people? How do you help people sort of navigate the terrain, even in the Wisconsin space where the the disparities around race are just so great when it comes to criminal justice? There's a, a theory in political science about the issue attention cycle, and the concept is that there are these kind of cycles, these waves, where every so often an issue or a set of issues becomes clear in the public's mind as something that has some urgency around it. And when that moment comes, there's a question of, is there an organized movement? Are there people in the streets? And are there policy entrepreneurs with specific policies that could move at that moment? So that when politicians feel pressure to act on something, to do something, do they have clear ideas laid out that they can do? In this frame, there's the Overton window, the concept of like what is politically feasible and thinkable and expanding that is part of the picture. And then there's the question of the interlocking coalitions and interests and fears and state of public opinion. And all those things kind of move at the same time. In this moment, we've seen public opinion, especially among white voters, radically shift, just radically shift a, a tremendous sense that we need to rethink public safety, that we need to rethink policing. Um, I was in a debate a few weeks ago with the Republican Party chair here, and the question of policing came up. And I said, look, police officers are being called on right now to deal with mental health crises that they're not trained for and that are not why they signed up for this job. That work could be better done by other folks. My sense was he actually agreed with that. So first, the salience of addressing the crisis of policing and especially of the racial disparities in how things land on people, the public attention and willingness to address this is now suddenly there. The second thing is a whole range of policy ideas are now up for consideration and debate that weren't before, and that's huge progress. The third thing is just to keep focusing on the mechanics of government. There are so many different levels of decision makers and the work, especially of, of movement leaders and so many folks, including the, uh, you and the whole team of hosts of this show, have helped to lay bare for people who has what power in what configuration in government at what level to make things happen. In Wisconsin, grassroots organizers have been pushing, like Leaders Igniting Transformation in Milwaukee, has been pushing to not have police officers, armed police officers in schools for years. They just won that fight. There's a similar conversation happening in Madison now. There are ideas that have been you know, prepared and drafted and put forward and newly elected leaders who are now responsive to those movements. And you know, like with everything else, Nothing changes until suddenly things change very fast. You don't get everything the first moment, but you get things that had been impossible. They suddenly become easy. And that, I, th I think we see that happening right now. I think the biggest thing for me as an organizer is, and you know, I'm wearing a party chair hat, so <laughs> it's a little different from uh, a lot of my past work and places where other people sit. But it is about like really illuminating 
all the different actors and figuring out what is the, the sequence of dominoes that have to fall to be able to make change. And then finding ways to get those concerns, demands addressed to the specific people who can move in the right sequence. It can be incredibly frustrating when you realize you're knocking on the wrong door, but it is, it is liberating and empowering. And you know, it's what got me pulled into this work for life to figure out exactly who can make the change and then bring that change to them in a way that makes it easy for them to say yes. Do you think you'll stay the party chair after the election? Like, what does it look like to be the chair of the party, not during an election cycle? I don't even know. I'm just like curious. What does that look like? So Wisconsin has generally four elections a year. (laughs) We have a a lot of elections. There's every four years, there's one 10 month period without an election in Wisconsin. Um, So in a sense, we're always in election season. We have primaries for the spring, general election for the spring, primary for the fall, general election for the fall. Um, it's only in 2021 that we'll only have two elections uh, for state superintendent of public schools in the spring election. So politics is ever present here on the electoral side. When I ran for chair in 2019, my platform was, it spelled out FIRE. So it was fight on our issues year round and fight to win. The IR is for include and respect people from all communities across race, across geography, in suburbs and cities and in rural areas alike. And the E is for empower the grassroots. So that was my platform. And part of the idea there is that we need to show up and be present year round. We need to be listening to the concerns of of all of our communities around the state and standing with folks, fighting alongside folks year round, not just in the weeks preceding an election. So I don't see there being an off season. Um, I think sometimes there's planning and scheming and sometimes there's doing, but the work continues. I love this job. I love this work because in Wisconsin, I think especially, it's so clear that there's a giant gulf between the parties and that one of the parties is so poisonous with how they treat everything, the way they divide. I mean, Scott Walker's phrase was divide and conquer. The way that they just hammer at the public in the state. It's just imperative that the GOP lose and that we elect people who are grounded in public service and values and and responsive to the public instead of just to Republican billionaires to serve us in public office. So that makes me proud to be a Democrat in Wisconsin and love the work as state party chair. It is also an elected office. So ultimately it'll be up to the, the voters in Wisconsin to decide. The state party chair elections are in June in odd numbered years. So uh, I will be up for re-election next spring, and I hope I have the opportunity to continue to serve because ultimately my goal is we've got to win Democratic majorities in the state assembly and state Senate and the governorship. And to do that, we need fair maps. We need to stop the veto now. We need to get gerrymandering dealt with through you know the governor's ability to veto Republican maps. And then once we have fair maps, we have a democracy, um, and we fight for a progressive majority in our state Supreme Court, then we can actually make the change that we need. Are there any positions that we should know about that people don't think about but matter a whole lot? Like, I'm always interested in the sheer number of things people vote for and and the news that you would think that the only election was like state legislature and the governor. But there seem to be, especially in your context, there's so many elections that it has to be other positions that we aren't thinking about. What are those? There are thousands of elected positions in Wisconsin and hundreds of thousands nationwide it's possible to just see how significant so many of them are. I mean, one of them that is just vital is clerk. There are 1,852 municipal clerks in the state of Wisconsin that administer elections locally, and all 72 counties have county clerks. And those clerks in Wisconsin control the machinery of the election that will determine, in a lot of ways, the direction the entire world goes this fall. 
there are really strong clerks. I mean, I'm, I'm here in Madison where I grew up. Mary Beth Wurzel is our municipal clerk and Scott McDonald is our county clerk. And they do so much amazing work to make sure that everybody can vote and that it's safe for everybody to vote. And when a ballot comes in that would be rejected, they do what you're supposed to do, which is reach out and help people cure their ballot and, and make sure that their ballot actually is going to work. Some clerks, uh, there's a clerk in Marathon County in Wisconsin who, as the local press has reported, has you know, sent emails saying she's going to do everything behind the scenes that she can, basically to, to push school board members to try to reopen the schools this fall. That is not what a clerk is supposed to do. And so th those offices that are so far from the headlines wind up having an enormous, enormous impact on what happens in people's lives. There are elected district attorneys and I, anyone who's listening, who's in Wisconsin or anywhere who wants to change our criminal justice system, go to law school and then run for district attorney. We could use your help. Those are elections that are rarely contested and it is often hard to recruit candidates for those positions, but they make a huge difference too. Those are two that jump to mind. There are so many others. There's county boards that play a critical role, school boards, city councils. And then there, there are statewide offices like Scott Walker tried to eliminate the office of treasurer in Wisconsin. He didn't want any independent power base, anyone looking over the books. And an amazing woman named Sarah Godlewski led this fight to make sure that Scott Walker could not eliminate this constitutional position. And then she ran for that office in 2018. So for, first she defeated the GOP's attempt to amend our constitution. Then she ran. She is now our state treasurer and she's doing an amazing job and looking at things like what can the state treasurer do to address student loan debt? Often there is power to be found in these positions, power to, to make people's lives better that just hasn't been used because creative people haven't occupied those offices before. I think running for office is just an extraordinary calling in our aspiring democracy. And if you look down the ballot, any of those things that you have to Google to find out what they do and who these candidates are, there's probably an opportunity that you know, someone listening right now could use to transform people's lives by running for that position. Okay, uh, Ben, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you so much. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. You are BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.